0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 23, No Risk Too Great, Part 2 of 2. As we talked about last time, the failure of the Allied fleet to force the Dardanelles led directly to the landing of troops on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Following Admiral Robeck's final attempt on March the 18th, the senior commanders met on board the HMS Queen Elizabeth to discuss what their next move should be. The mobile Ottoman howitzers, which stalked Robeck's minesweepers, proved to be the Achilles' heel of the naval operation, as counterfire from the fleet was too slow and too inaccurate to keep up with the rapidly moving cannons. Robeck was in agreement with General Sir Ian Hamilton, commander of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, ...that the most efficient way to silence the Ottoman guns was through a land operation... ...designed to storm the Gallipoli beaches... ...and force the Turks to direct their artillery away from the Dardanelles... ...allowing for Robeck's minesweepers to complete their task of clearing the strait. On March 23rd, just one month before the landings would take place... ...the decision to suspend naval operations was made... ...and the army began preparing to go ashore. From here on out, the Battle of the Dardanelles took a much different form... ...and began to slide down the slope to utter debacle... ...leaving 120,000 dead and the leaders in Britain being all too quick to point the finger. When it became clear that troops were required, there was immediate pushback from the senior staff in London, the most vocal opponent being the Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener. At the War Council meeting in January, Kitchener had agreed to the Dardanelles' plan on a principle, with the condition that the army would have nothing to do with it, leaving the navy as the sole trustee. Churchill, of course, was more than happy to agree to this, since he had originally proposed the whole thing as a sole naval venture. Kitchener's reasoning behind wanting to keep the army on the sidelines was that he was more concerned about the Western Front, and, rightly so, did not want a sideshow like the Darnell sucking manpower away from Europe. In Kitchener's estimation, the German army was nearing exhaustion, and Britain would need as many troops as possible to begin pushing the Germans out of France. In truth, however, Kitchener always had his doubts about the Navy's chances, but was not about to offer ground forces to Churchill, less risk he take him up on the offer and leave him shortchanged for Western Europe. Since January, Kitchener had stood by his decision by arguing that even if Churchill came to him hat in hand asking for ground troops, there was nothing he could do, because there were simply no troops available which could be deployed within a reasonable time frame. But all of this began to change in early February. When Britain declared war on the Ottomans in November 1914, their immediate concern was the security of Egypt and the Suez Canal, which shared its eastern border with what was then Ottoman-held Arabia. Stationed at the Suez were 70,000 troops under the command of Sir John Maxwell, whose force consisted primarily of troops from India, but had recently been reinforced by the arrival of 20,000 Australians and New Zealanders, who were en route to France, but had been stopped in Egypt because of the Ottoman naval threat. Kitchener's concern for Egypt was well placed, because on February the 3rd, 25,000 Ottomans backed by Arab regulars made a pretty ballsy move by crossing the Sinai Desert and attacking Maxwell's forces along the Suez. It had taken the Ottomans almost a month to complete the crossing, and the battle itself lasted just a couple of hours before they again retreated back into the Sinai. With the Suez Canal now secure and the naval operation at the Dardanelles about to begin, Kitchener was increasingly pressured by Churchill and the First Sea Lord, Jackie Fisher, to make part of Maxwell's garrison available for service in the Mediterranean, something which Kitchener found increasingly difficult to challenge. The argument against Kitchener was that there was no good reason to keep 70,000 troops hunkered in Egypt, especially since the Ottomans showing at the Suez was not particularly impressive. The fact that the Ottomans tracked the Sinai for weeks prior was not taken into consideration. But with the excuse of protecting Egypt now removed, Kitchener could no longer say that there were no troops available for campaigns elsewhere, and reluctantly appointed his old friend, Sir Ian Hamilton, in charge of the newly formed Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, cannibalized largely from Maxwell's former garrison. But it also became clear soon after that Kitchener had been hiding an additional division, the 18,000-strong 29th Division, a veteran group of mostly overseas troops which was currently in transit to France. Upon hearing this, Kitchener was forced to redirect them to the Mediterranean, much to the chagrin of Sir John France and Joseph Joff. It took Hamilton roughly three weeks to assemble the five divisions making up the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, the MEF for short, and as we saw, only had one month to prepare for the landings. And as a result, Hamilton threw everything but the kitchen sink into his planning. Sir Ian Hamilton was said to be one of the most experienced officers in the British Army. Born in 1853, the now 62-year-old general was a lover of classical poetry by the likes of Homer and Virgil. and had an impressive resume of overseas service, including India, Burma, Egypt, and South Africa, where he served as Kitchener's chief of staff from 1899 to 1902. In 1904, he was part of the British observation team sent to take notes on the Russo-Japanese War and became commander of the overseas forces in 1910. Like his former colleague Admiral Carden from last day, Hamilton was plucked from out of nowhere when the war broke out, and did not receive command of the MEF until March the 12th, just 11 days before the meeting on board the Queen Elizabeth, and, more crucially, 33 days before the landings. To put that into modern context, it takes 12 months to plan the Super Bowl for crying out loud, so to say Hamilton faced a daunting task would be a gross understatement. To add to this already insurmountable level of stress, Hamilton had received little instruction from Kitchener. It was basically ordered to just not screw it up. Well, I don't think this was a personal salvo at Hamilton, because the two men were old friends after all, it probably had more to do with Kitchener being really pissed off about having to send land forces, despite that oath Churchill's promises that the Navy could do it alone. Unfortunately for Hamilton, this meant he had nothing to go off of except for a few outdated maps and woefully inaccurate numbers of Ottoman defense strength. There were only two things that Hamilton could project with any sort of accuracy. One, that his targets were the Ottoman forts and mobile howitzers. And two, that he would need the full strength of his force to get it done. In total, the MEF consisted of 75,000 troops organized into five units. The first was the 29th Division, which we already mentioned. The second was a single Australian division, plus an additional battalion of mixed Australian and New Zealanders, which we commonly refer to as the ANZAC Corps. In addition, there was a small expeditionary army provided by the French of Algerian and Senegalese troops, in a division of Royal Marines. But the question of where he was going to land his forces remained unanswered. There was only one beach which was practical for an amphibious landing, located just south of Suvla Point, at a place we know today as Anzac Cove, which he obviously assigned to the Australians and New Zealanders. But other than that, Hamilton's options were limited. The Gallipoli Peninsula is a topographic nightmare for an attacking army. Not only is it smaller than Lake Michigan, making your choice of landing almost non-existent, But the landscape is dotted with numerous ridges, valleys, and deep ravines, which gave the Ottomans the distinctive advantage of always choosing the high ground, and being able to scope out the entire 75 kilometers, or 46 miles, of the peninsula in every direction. To counter this disadvantage, Hamilton concluded that the success of the landings depended on confusing the defenders, by launching coordinated assaults in the hope that confusion and panic would delay their response, allowing for the landing parties to establish a firm beachhead. If we take a look at the map I've uploaded to the Great com, I've laid out the basic outline of Hamilton's plan as best I could. Starting at the southern tip of the peninsula, the 29th and 1st Australian Divisions would make landfall at Cape Hellas, which was divided into five beachheads, Y, X, W, V, and S. We won't get into the particulars of each one, that's just so we have a general outline of what was going on. The Anzacs, as we already know, would take Anzac Cove which is located on the Aegean side of the peninsula. Meanwhile, the French division would launch a feint attack at Kale near the old fortresses ruined by Admiral Cardin's February bombardment. They are located directly south of Cape Hellas, but I've placed it a bit higher on the map because I found myself running out of room the further down I got, so just a heads up. Following their hopefully successful feint attack, the French would then hop across the Dardanelles and help the 29th and Australians get ashore at Cape Hellas. The second diversion was to occur further northeast, nearly 32 kilometers from Anzac Cove. There, the British marines of the Royal Naval Division would land at Belair with the hope of dividing the Ottoman defenders and forcing them to commit on opposite ends of the peninsula. Put simply, Hamilton was committing his five divisions to five separate landings. A risky move, but from a theoretic perspective it could very well have worked. However, the elephant in the room which no one seemed to have addressed was what would happen if the Turks did not fall for the ruses. It appears that this was given little to no consideration by anyone on the staff. Despite the fact that Hamilton had been on site to witness Robeck's final attempt to force the Straits, he did not consider that the Turks might not be as demoralized as he, or Robeck, had thought, and if the Turks met the landings with fierce opposition, there was no plan B. In case you have not noticed, not having a plan B seems to be the norm these days. But as the forces were preparing to land, spirits remained high. Among the troops, there was a sense that they were about to be part of something big. Not only was this to be the largest amphibious operation in military history, but if it worked and the navy got through the Dardanelles, they could credit themselves for being the first troops to knock a belligerent state out of the war. Since August, none of the combatants had surrendered as of yet, and being on the cusp of something so momentous must have been an unparalleled motivator. But it is important to note, and I want to make this clear, the Gallipoli landings were not an invasion of the Ottoman Empire. The plan was never to seize the peninsula and fight their way to Constantinople. The landings were solely orchestrated as a way to get the navy through the Dardanelles, and in a sense were a diversionary attack in their own right. Because of this, men were without proper supplies and equipment, and were not provided the resources necessary for prolonged occupation. A good indicator of this was the landing craft employed to ferry the men ashore. Basically, these boats were nothing more than roided up canoes pulled by a steam trawler, and once they neared the beach, the trawlers would release their hooks and the men would be propelled on the shore by a team of oarsmen. Only at V Beach at Cape Hellas was there anything resembling an armored landing craft. There, 2,000 English, Scottish, and Irish troops were packed inside a 345-foot cargo ship named the River Clyde, which was to be run aground to act like a barrier to protect the later waves of troops coming in. But, as we'll see, the presence of such a large ship had given the Turks an unmatched target of opportunity. April 25th, D-Day began at 5am with Robeck's fleet unleashing a massive bombardment in preparation for the landings. This was the first action for the Navy in nearly a month, and as a result, served to alert the Turks that something was up. For the past month, Saunders and his staff had been busy scouting the prospective beaches, and had dug an extensive trench network covering the ridges which overlooked the landing sites, and from there, the Turks waited. Depending on where you landed at Gallipoli, you're either met with an eerie calm or a wall of steel. For the Anzacs, they met little opposition, at least initially. Due to a mix-up somewhere, the Anzacs landed a mile north of their original target, and had sidestepped the Ottoman defenses completely. Taking advantage of this, the Anzacs quickly secured a beachhead of two square kilometers, but found that the topography around them was not what they had expected. The steep cliffs which lined the coast were the first problem but behind that laid impenetrable shrubs and deep ravines. When the Anzacs attempted to navigate their way off the beach, communication between the parties broke down, as they were forced apart by the inhospitable terrain. The Turks were quick to respond, and once they did, the Anzacs were pinned along the beachhead. The commander of the Ottoman 19th Division was General Mustafa Kemal, who would later become the first president of the modern state of Turkey, but we know him most famously by his adopted name, Kemal Ataturk which he received upon his death in 1934. Kamal was just 4 kilometers from where the Anzacs landed, and when he received word, moved his division and quickly occupied Sari Bayar, a ridge which overlooked both Anzac Cove and Suvla Point. After surveying the situation, Kamal correctly identified that 20,000 Anzacs coming ashore was not a diversion, and promptly counterattacked with his entire division. It was Kamal's keen eye which helped spell doom everywhere else. In the town of Gallipoli itself, where Saunders had made his HQ, Reports of a second landing at Boulère were immediately dismissed as diversionary. This owed to the fact that the Royal Marines had initially landed with only a fraction of the force the Anzacs had, which made it easy to dismiss. This was soon followed by a second report, indicating that the garrison at Cumcaille, where the French diversion was taking place, had largely surrendered. But more curiously, the French had left within 24 hours and were headed across the Dardanelles, to where the 29th and 1st Australian had come ashore at Cape Hellas. And it was at Cape Helles where the confusion and carnage had reached new levels. Of the five beaches at Cape Helles, codenamed Y, X, W, V, and S, the landings at Y Beach, X Beach, and S Beach were met with little opposition, but for those at W and V Beach, the situation was a nightmare. As the troops made landfall, they were instantly pounced upon by the Ottoman defenders. Entire longboats were wiped out without a trace, as machine guns and artillery wrecked havoc from all direction. Some troops took their chances in the water, and stepped off too far from shore and drowned, while others found themselves shoulder-deep in water, surrounded by floating dead. Weighted down by their gear, they could barely move and were at the mercy of the Ottoman gunners. When the river Clyde ran aground, the 2,000 troops packed inside were to rush down a set of gangplanks and make their way forward. But the planks had been positioned towards the bow, running parallel to the hull, and when the troops stepped out, they were decimated by the fire coming from the beach. The gangplanks, clearly in view of the Ottoman defenses, were soon clogged with the dead and wounded, and the survivors were forced to climb over their comrades or throw themselves over the railing. Of the 2,000 inside, a quarter were killed and nearly half would have to wait inside the ship until the beach was secure, almost two days later. By noon, the beach was littered with corpses, and for 30 meters from shore, the sea remained a crimson red for weeks. But in the face of this slaughter, the landing parties managed to secure a small beachhead, less than a kilometer inland along the former Ottoman defense line at Hill 141. This was partly helped by the Ottomans themselves, who on April the 27th had expended most of their ammo and forced to retreat. Now you might be asking, where was the navy in all of this? The Anzac and Hellas landings were being pounded, and from the Ottoman positions, the fleet remained a menacing presence offshore. The short answer, and this goes for the entire 8 months of the campaign, is that the topography and location of the front lines made it incredibly difficult for the fleet to differentiate between ally and foe. For example, from April 25th to May 5th, the bloodiest fighting took place. At Anzac Cove, fighting with the Royal Marines sent down from Bel Air, the Allies would lose 8,700 men killed, while the Turks lost 20,000. This discrepancy in casualties lends itself to the nature of the fighting. Like the French in Europe, it fell to the Turks to expel the foreign invader, and for the first and only time during the war, the Western Allies were playing the role of an occupying force. But after those bloody two weeks, Saunders and Kamal ordered their troops to dig their trenches as close to the Allied lines as possible. In some cases, there were only 4 meters, roughly 15 feet, separating the two armies. As a result, and this gets back to the Navy, the fleet could not risk shelling because they were just as likely to hit their own troops as they were the Turks. Like a goalie coming out to challenge a shooter, the Turks had severely limited what the Allies could do. With the fleet offshore and unable to play a role, the Turks had taken away the Allies' most powerful asset, leaving the troops on the beaches to rely on what they brought with them, which, we already know, wasn't much to begin with. The armies were quite literally living in each other's pockets. This was the situation within 11 days of the landings, and it would remain largely unchanged over the next 8 months. The Allies clung to their narrow beachheads with the Turks surrounding the high ground. This made resupplyment tricky, forcing the Allies to do so only at night. And as the crisis at Gallipoli worsened, a second crisis 2,000 kilometers away in London soon erupted. On May the 14th, amidst the carnage at Gallipoli and stalemate in Europe, the people of Britain awoke to the morning edition of the Times newspaper. The headline for that day read, quote, Need for shells. British attacks checked. Limited supply the cause, unquote. The media baron, Lord Northcliffe, had made his move. In the article was the recorded exchange of Sir John French after the failure at Neuve chapelle back in March. You'll recall that Sir French had told a Times correspondent that a lack of high-explosive shells was stifling the army's efforts. Well, Northcliffe had been sitting on that report for months, and with the bubbling efforts at Gallipoli, the perfect opportunity presented itself. The shell scandal had an immediate impact. Lord Northcliffe had been a professed opponent of Kitchener, who, as we know, was against committing Britain to a war economy. However, Northcliffe had found an ally in David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Lloyd George and Northcliffe believed that Britain required a military-industrial complex, where the economy is mobilized in support of arms manufacturing. Prime Minister Herbert Asquith had been dragging his heels on this issue since the end of 1914, but got the kick in the butt he needed when the Conservative Party leader, Andrew Bernard Law, came to his office with a proposition. With Kitchener under fire about his management skills, the scandal was further undermined by a growing rift between Winston Churchill and Jackie Fisher, which had everything to do with the direction of the Dardanelles' campaign. Churchill wanted to commit more ships to the theatre, while Fisher did not. The two men slowly grew to despise each other, largely because Fisher felt that Churchill was growing too bold in his demands from the Admiralty. On May 15th, the day after the scandal broke, Fisher resigned his post of First Sea Lord. The catalyst was prompted Law to visit Asquith. You see, Fisher was one of those guys that, even if you hated him, you had to respect his resume. He had dedicated his life to the service of the Royal Navy, and saw through one of the greatest overhauls in its centuries-long history. But Churchill was another matter. In the past, Churchill had counted himself as a member of the Conservative Party, but in 1904 had crossed over to the Liberals, which the Conservatives never forgave him for. They saw him as just another pampered aristocrat, who, despite never commanding in the field, believed himself to be a 20th century Napoleon. Basically, him as just another armchair general. So to the conservatives, the idea of Fisher resigning because of the Dardanelles was repulsive. It was Churchill's idea in the first place, so Churchill should take the fall. In order to save his administration, Asquith agreed to form a coalition government with the conservative unionists. Kitchener was kept on board, but found his power severely curtailed while David Lloyd George was appointed head of the newly created Ministry of Munitions, which was the beginning of Britain's growing commitment to the war effort. Under Lloyd George's leadership, the ministry would organize a new line of assembly works and pump out 35 million shells in preparation for the offensives on the Somme. Lloyd George's star would rise, and in December of 1916, would replace Asquith as Prime Minister of Britain. Furthermore, part of the new coalition agreement was that Churchill had to go. So on May the 25th, when Churchill showed up to work, he was told by Asquith to go pack up his desk. After handing over his resignation, Churchill skipped town and left to take command of a battalion on the Western Front. Of course, in 1915, Churchill did not have the same aura about him as he does today, and it is safe to say that had he been any less of a maverick, he probably would have just been another footnote in 20th century history. Although he remained deeply haunted by the Dardanelles experience, he would use his time at the Front to begin rebuilding his career and finally returned to politics in July of 1917. Meanwhile, the situation at Gallipoli had fallen into disarray. Both armies were at the mercy of the suffocating heat, and fresh water was an ill supply. Dust was everywhere, and food rations were often rotten. At Anzac Cove, the Australians and New Zealanders had honeycombed themselves into the cliffside, and had to dodge Ottoman gunfire just to cool off in the sea. In the aftermath of the bloody contest, which often featured vicious hand-to-hand combat, the dead were simply left where they lay. With sanitation nearly non-existent, bacterial infection and dysentery plagued both armies, and with no mosquito nets, malaria soon began to claim the lives of hundreds. Regardless of which side you were on, life was miserable. Lieutenant Mehmet Fasish, a young Ottoman officer writing about his time at the front, illustrates the everyday experience. Quote, I'm 21 years old. My hair and beard are already grey. My moustache is white. My face is wrinkled and my body is rotting. I can't any more endure the hardships and privations we face without being upset. Being an Ottoman officer means only putting up with grenades and bombs. End quote. While a newspaper correspondent embedded with the Anzacs recalls the animosity felt towards the Turks quote, Turkish prisoners are brought each day into camp. The Australians certainly look on prisoners with disfavor. They have heard stories. Some of those who come back from the advanced positions brought stories of mutilated comrades and have told me that they had orders to take no prisoners. End quote. With the situation on the ground going from bad to worse, things were not helped by the fact that in March of 1915, Kaiser Wilhelm had authorized the implementation of unrestricted submarine warfare. Now we'll talk more about this further down the road, but what this meant for the Gallipoli campaign was on May the 25th, a German U-boat had slipped the Allied fleet and arrived in the Dardanelles, proceeding to sink two battleships off Anzac Cove. Considering the horrific situation inland, the loss of two battleships was further demoralizing for the Allies, who witnessed it in clear view. But the change in government had resulted in a renewed effort to break the Gallipoli deadlock. Beginning in August, Hamilton had received an additional two divisions of mostly inexperienced troops from England. Hamilton had planned to open a third beachhead by landing this force at Suvla Point, just north of Anzac Cove, forcing Kamal to fight both armies at the same time. The plan was for the Anzacs to storm the Sari Bayar Ridge from the south, while the newly landed division attacked from the east. But like everything else so far, it was a complete mess. In the narrow pass connecting the Anzacs to the ridge, two Australian light horse brigades took 75% casualties for absolutely no gain. If you've ever seen the 1981 Mel Gibson film Gallipoli, this was the battle depicted in the final scene, although not exactly in the correct context. It was after the August failure when the Allies recognized that they had to evacuate the peninsula. This was because it appeared that Bulgaria, unimpressed with the Allied effort at Gallipoli, had thrown in its lot with the Central Powers and were gearing up to attack Serbia. By the fall, the weather in the Aegean had turned bad, and torrential rainfall followed by a drop in temperature had flooded the trenches and froze the troops in their shelters. In October, Hamilton was sacked by Kitchener, and after a personal tour of the Allied lines, Kitchener finally authorized the evacuation. From December to January, the troops began to withdraw from the beach, and on January 7th, the last Allied barge had left the coast. Despite Winston Churchill's belief that the operation would be a quick, low-cost affair, the Dardanelles campaign had brought a change in British government and had cost him, Jackie Fisher, Admiral Cardin, and Ian Hamilton their jobs, and had lasted eight agonizing and miserable months. The Turkish defenders had proven that the Ottoman Empire had not yet lost its military prowess, but the fighting had taken its toll. The Turks counted 87,000 dead and 251,000 casualties in total, while the Allies took 141,000. Of those, 21,000 British, 10,000 French, 8,700 Australians, and 2,700 New Zealanders were killed for absolutely no gain. What struck me the most as I was researching for these episodes was just how much of a debacle this whole thing was. Unlike, say, the Battles of the Somme, which at least followed some sort of coherent plan, the Dardanelles and Gallipoli were pure improvisations. There was never a grand scheme in which to follow, and so when things hit a snag, there was no point of reference to help find a solution. Part of this was because the British had underestimated the Turks. The attack on the Suez had led them to believe that the Ottoman Empire was a paper tiger, which stood no chance against the might of the Royal Navy. But since the Turks were fighting on their home soil in a defense of their empire, it had given them that ever important morale boost which allowed them to keep the Allies from ever moving inland. Assisting this was the simple fact that the Allies did not have what it took to make such a risky move like this pay off. It soon dawned that nothing was going to be easy in this war. There was no shortcut in defeating Germany and Austria, and as long as the Western Front remained the main consumer of men and equipment, there would not be enough to spare elsewhere. But for the Australians and New Zealanders, who got their first combat experience on the peninsula, Gallipoli is often seen as when these two nations came into their own. For the Australians, Gallipoli was a baptism by fire. From a total population of 4.9 million, 420,000 would answer the call, and 8,700 were killed in the campaign's 8 months. While the Anzac suffered less casualties than the British, French, or Turks, for such a young country those losses were tough to bear. In 1985, the Turkish government officially recognized the name Anzac Cove and turned it into a national memorial, which today remains a popular site of pilgrimage for many Australians and New Zealanders. If I ever scrape enough money together, visiting it is definitely on my to-do list. In order to close our discussion on the Dardanelles, we had to jump out of chronology a bit, so next week we are going to backtrack and pivot our focus to the Eastern Front. While the Allies were struggling to get ashore at Gallipoli, the Germans and Austrians were not waiting around. In May, Falkenhayn unleashed his mammoth offensive designed to liberate Glacia and boot the Russians out of Poland. But unlike Gallipoli, this had success. Nearly half a million Russians would be killed, and by October, were forced to retreat 100 miles and establish a new line in the Pripet marshes. The Great Retreat was a severe blow to Russian morale, in September 1915, Tsar Nicholas II would take personal command of the army, directly tying the prestige of his monarch to the bumbling military effort. Unfortunately for him, this would not work out, and with the Tsar miles from the capital, people began to talk, and the storm clouds of revolution were starting to gather. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podman.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, and Twitter information if you wish to get in contact with me, If you are feeling generous and wish to help out the Great War Podcast, look us up on iTunes and rate us 5 stars, as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract any new listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.